This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. Listen up, nerds. No. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border and coast to coast and all the ships at sea. What? Hello, friends. Do you have a computer? Of course you do, because it's not 1987. Hell, you're listening to this on some kind of computer right now. But do you have a VPN? Oh, (laughs) what's a VPN, you ask? Well, my friend, a VPN is a virtual private network and it offers two key benefits. Enhanced privacy and security online. But VPNs do a lot more than that. VPNs shield your IP address, change your browsing location, and make online life easier. It's all about safety and security, my friends. But, like everything else in life, it's also about watching TV. Don't let your paid subscriptions go to waste. I use NordVPN to access my home content while I'm traveling. Wink, wink. Plus, secure your connection on public Wi-Fi in airports, hotels, cafes, anywhere you go when you're traveling. There's over 6,300 servers in 111 countries, and you can find a nearby server for the best VPN speeds. NordVPN is easy to use. Connect with one click or enable auto-connect for zero-click protection. And it's got amazing speed. NordVPN is one of the fastest VPNs out there. And with just one NordVPN account, you can use it on six devices. It supports every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Linux, even Android TV. I think those are all real. Don't miss out on all the awesome benefits for using a VPN. Go to nordvpn.com ifanboy today for a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. The link's in the show notes. Once again, that's nordvpn.com ifanboy. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Um, you ever feel like you really need to get something off your chest? This is this this is a, like a real thing. Like, if you're mad, if you're upset, if uh, if there's something going on, like the I, there's there's often for me an idea. Maybe it's a wrong. Maybe it's a moment. It's it's an injustice. It's something that because you, you keep going on and on over and over in your mind about it, and like that can create anger and resentment or shame, whatever it is. And very often. I have found, I am not a therapist, I have found that when you let it out, when you give it voice, when you say it out loud, um, sometimes it makes you feel better because you've, you've expressed it. And sometimes it makes you realize like, oh, this is not a big deal that I've, it's been stuck in my head. So you give voice to those things um, and it can make you feel a lot better. And shock of all shocks, therapy is one of those things that can help you do that. It can help you be able to say those things in a place where you don't need to worry about the repercussions of it, work your way through it, uh, figure out coping skills, how to get around it, you know, find, find ways to deal with that stuff instead of letting it fester. Um, if you are thinking of starting therapy, uh, if anything I said sounds familiar, you're like, oh, maybe my life would be a little better if I could deal with that kind of thing. You should give BetterHelp a try. It's fully online. It is convenient, flexible. It is suited to your schedule. That's the idea. That's what they're going for. Um, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. That's a big deal. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. That that personal connection, I believe, to be super important. Again, I'm not a professional. Uh, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash iFanboy today. You get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iFanboy. You're listening to Goodfellas Minute 113. <laughs> I know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care Hello, welcome to Goodfellas Minute, the only podcast that analyzes the March Scorsese picture Goodfellas one manly crying minute at a time. My name is Connor Kilpatrick, I'm here with Ron Richards. Hello. And Josh Flanagan. Hey. And, <laughs> are you okay? No. 
Joining us today and all week, our special guest, television film producer, mafia expert, and friend of Henry Hill, David Uslan. Hey, yo. How you doing, David? Hello, boys. Hanging in with us? I'm excited to be back. All right, so this minute kicks off with Jimmy trapped in a glass case of emotion. (laughs) (laughs) That one wins. The whole movie, that one wins. (laughs) And it ends with Jimmy still crying. There's a lot of Jimmy crying. It ends with Jimmy still crying. A lot of Jimmy crying. We've got the aftermath now that Jimmy's been informed that instead of being made, Tommy was in fact murdered. So now we have to deal with that fallout as Jimmy realizes his dreams of criminal superstardom have been dashed. Yep. So let's get into it. Well, before we get into the history, let's talk about the actual, like the the film aspect of it. Yes. I was taken aback in this minute about the range in acting skills between one Robert De Niro who is grief stricken and crying at the loss of his friend. And the choices that Ray Liotta makes in portraying Henry Hill in not being surprised that someone's dead at all. Like, the worst acting by Liotta, I think, in the entire movie. No, I disagree. I I was just like, the the, the non-reaction by him is is laughable in my opinion. No, no, They're different personalities. They're different people. All of my notes were like, I've seen this lots of times before, and I've seen... De Niro, you know, doing the sad thing for the whole minute and whatever. And I hadn't ever watched what Henry does, and it's that he has no idea what to do. He's like, I should touch him on the shoulder. No, I'm not going to do it. And he's, no, he's playing a guy who doesn't know how to wreck. This is the toughest guy that he knows. Yeah. And he's crying. He has no idea what to do. He is completely out of his area of expertise of how to deal with this. Like, he's like, do I give him a hug? Like, that's not what these guys are going to do. Well, so, he, so he he runs out of the diner because he see he saw watched him from the diner, you know, him beating the phone up. I feel like that's not out. uncommon. And and I feel when, like that part's normal. Yeah, that part is normal. When, when Jimmy says he's gone, he turns away from the camera and puts his hand to his head because, and it's like a non-reaction. So you guys want to get some some historical perspective here? Absolutely. Yeah, oh, please. So, without going into too much detail. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, please, go into detail. (laughs) You know, from my understanding, Henry and Tommy did not have the best. Now, this, I think, is just, you know, it just actually supports the film. From a historical point of view, I don't think that this was intentional when they made the film. But Tommy and uh, Henry were not very close towards the end of Tommy's life, uh, right at that moment. I, I believe that there was there was definitely some tension there and some 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 problems stemming from the fact that Tommy was insane. Right. And I think that there were some personal situations with Tommy and Henry's uh, family at this moment. You know, they were all already on drugs. You know, the cocaine kind of phase already kind of set in. And there were some things that happened. Now, also, you got to understand, too, that Tommy was responsible, even though it was different in the film, but he was responsible for t- killing two Gambino guys that was completely unsanctioned. We'll get to that in a second, but first, let's build off that. I think what's interesting about what you said is played a little bit in the film in that, and we've talked about this, the way that Leota has been reacting to Tommy since the spider incident has been different. Yeah, that's a good point. He, he even plays it really well in that scene, specifically where he looks at Tommy differently for the first time, at least that we've seen. Let's just say that, you know, Tommy obviously thought about himself and didn't think about any kind of situation that would be cause for anybody else around him. You know, and that, having that mentality, you know, not only threatens you, but threatens your family. Right. So, you know, I think that anybody who is irrational 
you know, you, you look with a cautious eye towards and, uh, and nothing is shocking, uh, you know, when something happens to somebody like that. I'm going to disagree with you, Ron. I think he's playing it really well, someone who doesn't know how to deal with the situation. You've got the guy who's sort of your surrogate father figure, other than Paul Vario, right. Jimmy, and he's freaking out and he's, he's crying, openly weeping in public, especially for these type of guys. How would you And do you that? don't want to do the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. Because you'll be like the phone booth. He'll smash you. As I'm watching that, I'm seeing him take the inhale, exhale, and try to put the hand on the shoulder, and then does, and then immediately off, and then steps back, steps forward. So I'm coming around there. It's just that initial reaction I just thought was like the turn away from the camera. Just felt it. Just felt it. It. it, it that that I had a problem with. But. You also get some good. We haven't had this in a little while. Some good Jimmy side looks. Well, oh, so great. This is. He looks this to the, the side. Thing. Looks back. This moment in time right here is actually one of my favorite Robert De Niro scenes ever. Yep. I mean, seeing him emotional like this, very different from his uh, emotional uh, scenes in Analyze This. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this scene is just is just awesome. And again, like, you know, my, I, you know, my in my life, I've known a lot of people and I've met a lot of people. And I grew up in a in a very interesting world where I was, you know, the only Jew out of all of my Italian friends and uh, and the world that I saw to at a, at a young age. And there is something that can be said for, you know, you don't see a lot of emotion. No, never. And in yeah. my whole life of knowing these guys, there's maybe been, you know, uh, the amount of times I can count on one hand where I have seen people get emotional about something that has happened within this world and, lo- and even, even losing people. And, and it's such a powerful moment to see. And again, something so so rare that uh, I just I just love it. Yeah, and we got to give him credit for not only being emotional, but uh, but toppling a phone booth, which is something I've never seen before in my life <laughs> up to this point. It's something you always dream of. You're like, oh wow, that it'd be great to push that thing over, and he actually does it. He kicks it over, doesn't he? he, he like first he kicks it, and then he put then he it, right. it's a shove. It's a it's a full shove. I really enjoy the random guy in the background who walks past, looks over as it falls over. Should I stop it? No, I'm just gonna keep walking. No. Well, that's whatever's I'm, happening. I'm not getting. That's involved. the most realistic New York thing in this whole thing. <laughs> it really is. He slows down and then he just keeps on walking. It's, <laughs> it's not too bad. So what I thought was interesting is that we get we so so this leading into what really happened. Uh, we get the voiceover of Henry explaining that it was revenge for bats and basically like that that's that's why he got shot and he describes it as you know it was amongst the Italians it was real greaseball shit. Right. And what I, what I thought was funny is that no less than a minute ago, in the previous minute, he's talking about the system and how great it is. You know, like it's just like like it's funny how in one set in one hand they're talking about how wonderful the whole system is, and then the moment something happens that they don't like, it's real greaseball shit. Well, I interpret it differently than, yeah. than that. You know, greaseball shit. When he mentions that, it means like real like Italian code you know, shit. And that is, you know, why all of these guys have respect for the organization because there is a code. And I think that that plays into, again, why Henry is not shocked here. They all know what Tommy did. And in real life, they knew what Tommy did. He's been worried about it for a while. It was, this is, this is, this is only expected, but this is, but that's like, that is greaseball shit. That is, the part of the Ten Commandments of the mob. Yep. You take out somebody that is unsanctioned, that is a death wish. Period. End of story. No matter when or where, 
That is a death wish. That is real greaseball shit. So, Ron, on this, uh, my fun fact has to do with the term greaseball, but before I get to that, on, on the spectrum of slurs, when you've got guinea wop and greaseball, what's the what's the order? You also there? have you also have zip. Zip's right. in one. <laughs> right. so, Ron, Any of this okay? <laughs> Ron, Ron's our cover. Ron, what is the uh, order here? What is the spectrum? What are you most offended by? Um, probably guinea. Yeah. Really? Yeah, guinea than wop. I'm okay. A greaseball isn't that bad. I think guinea and wop are worse than greaseball or zip. All right. Well, the but. fun fact is, and I, I'm not, I'm not saying I buy this because the online etymology dictionary. I don't know how trustworthy this is a source, but they say greaseball is from 1934, which I, that's when it became as a slur. I don't believe, I don't necessarily believe it, because in World War One it was a slang for army cook, and in World War Two it was slang for mechanic. I guess it became a slur in the 30s. Interesting. If you look up in Wikishonary, greaseball, it says, derived from the fact that Italian-Americans are stereotyped as having greasy or greased-up hair, e.g. John Travolta in Grease and Saturday Night Fever. I found at least three different... <laughs> reasonings for the grease ball. There's the hair. There's the looking like you haven't showered, and then there yep. was the uh, the. That all checks a, out. As a um, as a as a slang for meatball, like a the greasy meatball. Yeah. You also when we're talking about slurs, you forgot dago. Dago, right? Yeah, That's which is one. yeah. Is that yeah. number one? Uh, dago is up there with Guinea and Wop. <laughs> your your voice wavered there for a second, and I I want to say hurt? I that was an experience. I want to say I appreciate this conversation. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> Did you ever, did you, have I'm you ever sorry, experienced parents, those slurs in a derogatory way when you were like walking down the street when you were like eight? No, 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 no. Okay. There was there, 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 we, there, I was. I mean, there were enough of us that nobody said that to us. So yeah, it wasn't. We were we weren't in a discriminated area. You know, there were a lot of. When you went to Hollywood, were you ever talking to like an executive <laughs> at, a, a, at a studio and you ever? Well, well, no, no I, I have not. I have not dealt with He's that. He's had every piece of ass there is. <laughs> but so. when I hear Dago, the first thing that's reminded of me, and David and Connor, you'll appreciate this, but which I'm sure you guys have heard this story. Back in the in the 1920s on the Yankees, there was a second baseman named Tony Lazari. Of course. And and he played a prank on Babe Ruth once, where Babe Ruth had uh, visine or eye drops. And Lazari, uh, Lazari dumped the eye drops out of the bottle and filled it up with water. And when Babe came into the clubhouse, Tony Lazari said, "Hey, maybe your eye drops will, will help me." And then he drank it. And Babe Ruth doubled over laughing and goes, "Look at the dago!" <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That's my memory of dagos. Tony Lazari, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, All right. So, but but talking, but speaking of that, talking about what really happened, and, and David, I'm, I'm sure you you know a lot of this as well. So I'm going to throw to you uh, here. But so in real life, Tommy D. Simone, as we mentioned earlier in in uh, on previous podcasts, he died in and around after the Lufthansa heist happened. Shortly after Lufthansa, the late December, early January. Well, we assume he died. He just disappeared. Well, he disappeared. Yes, he disappeared. On January 14th in 1979, his wife reported him as missing, saying that she had last seen him a few weeks, few weeks earlier when he borrowed $60 from her. Um, and she reported him missing. So sometime before January 14th, the FBI and the New York Police Department thought that he was just part of the Lufthansa killings that were going on at the time um, or that he was hiding to be avoided being killed. But that is not actually uh, what happened. And then also, as, as Henry says in the voiceover, this was revenge for the murdering of Billy Bats, which is kind of true. Kind of, sort of. Sort of. Weren't there just revelations about this just recently? Or relatively recently? Yeah, somewhat. Uh, well, David, what, what do you know about the death of Dami Simone? What can you say? 
<laughs> all I know is that he was responsible for killing two Gambino guys and uh, or yeah, being, uh, being William William Billy Bass Bentavina and Foxy Jeroth. Yeah, and uh, and it was unsanctioned, and uh, and he wasn't a made guy yet. So uh, what about the rumors that it was John Gotti who shot him? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, listen, Gotti was one of the main, uh, you know, he was the one of the main trigger men for the Gambino family back then. Yeah. Well, for for a very very long time, it was believed that Peter Vario, Paul Vario's kid, and Bruno Facciolo were the ones who took him to the to go quote unquote get made and then murdered him. But yeah. but Henry Hill later on said no, actually it was John Gotti. Well, it, again, it's it's real greaseball shit, and uh, and they you know they it wouldn't it, you know it's not unthinkable to think that there would have been Gambino guys there when this all went down and they were the ones who, who took him out and probably, you know, did some horrific shit to him. Now, David, what do you know about or do you believe the implication of Paul Vario being involved? You know, I don't really I don't really know. I do know that the whole drug thing fucked everything up. Yeah. And uh, and that hurt all of these guys' relationship to Vario. Even though, I mean, even though he still was seeing money from drugs and shit, yeah. they all were. But well, but so so yeah. Well, so the the thing that the thing that I read, which whether or not it's true or not, uh, Henry Hill talked about it in, in the book Gangsters and Goodfellas that came out in like the mid nineties. And Josh and Connor, we talked for on previous shows about how Karen had the affair with Paul Vario when Henry was in prison. Yeah, yes. and so apparently. When Henry was in prison, at some point, Tommy D. Simone went to Karen to have some relations, and uh, she turned him down. And in re- and then in response to that, Tommy attempted to rape her, and apparently that never sit well with Paul Vario. And so when he saw his opportunity, he let the Gambinos know that it was Tommy who took out Bats and Jeroth, and basically opening the door for the Gambino, saying, "Okay, well, we got to take him out." I think of it differently and see it differently. That's a that's a very soap opera. That, like, that, that is very that is very soap opera. So a couple things here. Number one is big picture situation. All right, you have a guy that is a non made guy. Now, first of all, you also have to understand that Tommy De Simone, his family was all Gambino guys. All right, so he had well, like, and his his brother's a rat, though, right? So, yeah, but he had he had family that were deep. It was a deep Gambino connection there with with like cousins or or somehow there was there was a strong Gambino connection, and he murdered somebody within the the family that his family was connected to, right. and he is a non made guy hanging out with one of the big rival crime families. And, uh, you know, that is very, very frowned upon. Now, also, back when this was taking place, the Gambino crime family was the strongest organized crime family. Carlo Gambino was by far and away the strongest American mafia don that has existed for the most part. And such an unassuming, nice-looking old man. They always are. I mean, yeah. you look at you look at the Chicago outfit, and you have Tony Accardo, who is probably the most powerful, more powerful than Capone ever was. And these guys are, were again, the total unassuming grandfather-like figures who just stayed in the shadows. So when 
two guys are murdered or cliffed that were captains or higher in, in the most important, powerful crime family, when Carlo Gambino himself would go to the boss of, say, the Lucchese crime family and demand that they serve up this guy, you really can't say no. And Paul Vario was probably under so much, and they, they mention it in the movie it, it's some, during one of the minutes, but he probably was under so much pressure because that hit went down on his watch and uh, by one of his guys that, you know, that's one of the things, man, where, where the code is more important than the person and you got to follow the rules. So I think that that was probably what played into it more than any of the personal stuff. And I also believe that Henry's wife, I think a lot of that stuff was fabricated between Henry's wife and Paul and, and, and that whole thing. But I do know that, again, Paul was taking care of Henry's family and was really helping them out. And I think that... That, again, something happened between Tommy and his family, Henry's family, that made it very personal and caused them to be on the outs when this thing happened. And I think that drugs and all of that stuff played into it, and, uh, and, and that really was, was what was responsible for those relationships. But I think there was a bigger kind of family-to-family -family play, which is really why everything happened the way it did. Nobody could say no, and they had to do it. Fascinating. Totally fascinating. Another theory in terms of uh, who did it. So we, we've got a theory that it's Peter Vario and Bruno Facciolo. We've got the theory that it's John Gotti. And there's a third one. Apparently, uh, there's a uh, mafia informant of Joseph Joe Dogs Iannuzzi, who, who said that Thomas Agro claimed in 1985 that he did the murder. So and that Th Thomas Agro claims that he also killed De Simone's brother Anthony, the one who was the rat, and uh, and he would joke about killing their third brother, saying he was going to go for the De Simone trifecta. I mean, listen, all of these guys were some of the top hitters of the time for that family, right. you know, and all these guys socialized with one another, and they were all a part of the biggest hits that went down. And for, I wouldn't be shocked if some of these guys just went along to sit in cars and watch this shit go down because they were so sick and twisted. Yeah. And uh, so you're talking about that inner circle that really was at the heart of a lot of the bigger the bigger hits that went down during this period. What's interesting, though, is I, I do believe that, that Gotti was probably a part of this. So you got to understand that you know Gotti was their connection, one of their strong Gambino connections for all of the heisting, all the heists and all of the, the hijacking that they were doing at what became Kennedy Airport. And they all hung out and were from the same area, kind of, to a certain degree. And they knew one another. So it wouldn't be shocking for somebody like Tommy to maybe see somebody like a John Gotti. Maybe it wouldn't worry him right away. But regardless of that, John, his strongest relationship was with this guy named Neil Delacroche. And Neil was the underboss of the Gambino crime family. And Neil was their war horse. He was their, he was their, was the violent hand of the Gambino crime family. You had Carlo Gambino, 
And then he had Paul Castellano, who was his brother-in-law, who was the white-collared, smart, intellectual. And then he had Neil Delacroche. And Neil was the violent arm. And John was his boy. So any kind of, again, big hit, anything that was sanctioned that went down... You know, I again, I would think that that Neil would want to send his top lieutenant to take care of it himself. So I, I actually, you know, talked to uh, to Henry about this, and Henry did tell me that that uh, that Gotti was a part of all this, and Gotti was there, and uh, and I believe it. Wow. Whether he pulled the trigger or not, that's up for discussion because nobody saw the body. I would assume that it would be like one of those again, like horrific blowtorch to the nuts type situation. Oh. Well, yeah. Well, that was the, that was that's the other theory is that is that apparently because Bats in real life, Billy Bats was very very good friends with John Gotti, and that apparently that you know some of the accounts are that Gotti took his time with De Simone and he wanted him to suffer before he died because he made his friend suffer. Yeah, the guys that don't turn up are the ones that aren't killed to prove a point. Those are the ones that, for the most part, are very personal and, you know, end up in a way that doesn't want to be publicized. I mean, right. really, typically speaking, that's it. I mean, look at the ones like Hoffa and look at all those very high-profile disappearances. They're very personal and they don't want shit showing up because they don't need to prove a point. Their disappearance is proof enough. So I would assume that whatever it is went down was equally as personal to the way that Joe Pesci and the character, again, that he portrayed, his character in Casino, the way that that murder went down as well. Yeah. Ugh. There you go. So how about that shot on the floor? <laughs> <laughs> That's great, man. Great shot. Uh, well, oh, yeah. Think about it. Who's going to scrub that floor? We get a little more We get a little more Vinny as he steps over and goes, and that's that. But and I mean, listen, that. you know, floors are so important to these Italian directors. Look at the look at the scene where uh, Michael Corleone, you know, kills the uh, the Sicilian dude and the police captain in Godfather, and that famous tiled floor, you know, that's been replicated in Italian restaurants across the country. You know, it seems like these Italian directors love their their beautifully Italian tiled floors with the right death scene. <laughs> you talk about these people, David, in, in a way that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> what if he said these grease balls? Look at look at how these grease balls handled their floors. Floors, hey dude. Um, so so my question is something of continuity because what we're getting is we're bouncing between Jimmy in the parking lot, Jimmy and Henry in the parking lot, and Tootie and Vinny with you know just doing the deed. At what point does the phone call take place? Like well, did Tootie shoot after. him in the head and then the, and then the phone rang and Vinny answered it and says that was that there was nothing we could do or or did the phone call happen a little time after the the, the oh, blood after, spilling after yeah. after he's cutting back for effects yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh gosh it's real greaseball shit my one note is that what I really liked about not and not that not that this is a we talk a lot about the importance of music in this movie and not every scene has music or not every scene is accompanied by music but just the the what do they call it? Room tone or natural sounds that are happening in the parking lot while Jimmy's crying. I thought it was just really like just the silence of it, you know, the diegetic sound. Yeah, exactly. As it were, there's a lot of silence in this minute. The next minute or so. Yeah, a lot, a lot of things are happening are settling in. Yeah. So my question here is, why is Jimmy so sad? And I say this because was he actually close to Tommy? Did he really? I'm talking about this really in the in the case of the film itself. But, I mean, we're talking about a guy who just killed every single one of his friends. 
No, but this no, but 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 here's the thing: is that in, at least in terms of separating the real life to the movie, you know, he he did the culling, and Tommy made it. Tommy wasn't he was helping him kill him. He killed Maury. He probably killed other people. So like Tommy was never going to get killed for Latansa, at least in the movie side of things. If you're in the fictional thing, mm-hmm. and here you've got he's mentored this kid from when he was the the kid. How you doing, Hendry? You know, yeah. in the in the canary yellow suit. You know, back in the fifties. Like he he's was no- very excited that he was going to get made. It's interesting because yeah. I think that those two scenes really show you what their relationship is like. Yep. In, in the background of this whole thing because they don't really go into it all that much. But by the reaction of how happy he was that he was going to get made and how unhappy he was uh, they got he got killed, you know, that's that stands out. It's unusual. Yeah. But also they mentioned earlier that, that Tommy being made is the closest they would come to being made. Sure. So yeah. he, he had the high of thinking he was being made to the low of he's not being made and Tommy's dead and they're all screwed. You know? Yeah. And that's that. And that's that. And, that, and that's that. Anybody else have any notes on this particular minute? I do not. I have six fucks. Wow. Very emotional, Jimmy. Ugh. Six fucks. And, and, and now that Tommy's gone, he Tommy was one of our main sources of fucks. Yeah, I'm curious because well, the number, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that, the final number on Friday, but we still have quite a many fucks to go. <laughs> These probably won't come as rapid fire. So that's it for minute... 113. You can tune in tomorrow for one, minute 114. Until then, check us out on Twitter at GoodfellasMin and on Instagram at Facebook at GoodfellasMinute. You can find all of our episodes at GoodfellasMinute.com. Uh, David, where can people find you if you wish them to? They can find me on Twitter at DMUslin or they can find me on Facebook at David Miles Uslin. Alright, and uh, to support this show, you go to Patreon.com slash GFM or go to GoodfellasMinute.com slash support. We can shop via Amazon. But if you become a patron at a certain level, you get your own very own mob nickname, which we will bestow upon two patrons on Friday's episode. So stay, stay tuned for that. And if you have any questions or comments, anything of note, if you are a member of Ron's family and you are offended by our talk about greaseballs and other slurs, <laughs> I apologize. That was all for academic purposes. But please direct your emails to contactthegoodfellasminute.com. Attention, Ron. <laughs> Attention, Ron. <laughs> uh, or call Ron. Just call him directly. Just skip the whole email thing. Go for it. And until then, I'm very sorry. Or will I go from a rags to return? My fate is up.